You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Explorers Podcast. Glad you are back for part six in our series on Hernan Cortez and the conquest of Mexico. Our last episode was a doozy. Cortez had defeated an army of fellow Spaniards under the command of Panfilo de Narvaez, but had then been forced to rush back to Tenochtitlan to confront a revolt by the Aztec people following the massacre at the festival of Tashcatl. After that, things did not go well for the Spanish. They ended up trapped in the city as the insurgency grew around them. In the process, Emperor Montezuma would die, and his brother, Cuitlahuac, would ascend the throne. Cuitlahuac would throw all the might of the Aztec Empire into the fight, forcing Cortes and his men to try and slip out of the city on July 1st, 1520. The retreat would be a disaster for the Spanish and their Colon allies, with at least half of their numbers, maybe more, being killed in the fighting. The Spanish also lost most of the treasure they had looted from the Aztec coffers. The defeat would be called La Noche Triste, the Night of Sorrows. I also want to point out something that I did not mention in our last episode. This defeat was not just about the Spanish and their Colon allies. We cannot forget about the non-combatants, such as the women, slaves, and porters. There were hundreds, maybe even thousands, of these people, many of whom would die in the flight from Tenochtitlan. Cortes and the survivors made their way east, aiming for the safety of Cala. But that was more than 50 miles away, as the crow flies, and over the mountains. And we can't forget that this was a battered force. They were exhausted and hungry and weak. There were hundreds of injuries, many men unable to walk without the help of a colleague. And the Spanish had lost all of their artillery, not to mention many of their prized war horses. Things looked bleak. In the last episode, I noted that the Aztecs didn't follow up quickly and pounce on Cortez while his men were weak and disoriented. And that is true. If they had hounded him relentlessly, the Spanish would have been hard-pressed to survive. And while this did not happen, it doesn't mean the Aztecs were ignoring Cortez. Huitlahuac would eventually order his brother, Matlatzincatl, to gather a force and pursue Cortez. Cortez and the survivors ascended the mountains surrounding the Valley of Mexico, battling cold and hunger, not to mention constant attacks from Aztec skirmishers. It was in the mountains, after about a week of marching, that the Aztecs under Matlatzincatl caught up to the Spanish in the Valley of Otumba, with an army that numbered between ten and 20,000. Cortes had maybe four to 500 men, and many of his Colon allies had already moved on to their home, so the number of natives fighting with Cortes may have been as low as a 1,000. The situation was dire. The Spanish were weak and tired. 
The Aztecs, fresh off of victory, were confident and enjoyed overwhelming numbers. Still, with death facing them in the face, Cortes and his army lined up on the plains and engaged the Aztec army. Now, the size of the Aztec force was daunting, and their overwhelming numbers almost won the day for them. However, these men had never faced cavalry in battle, not like this. They had seen the cavalry in the narrow streets and causeways in and around Tenochtitlan, but here, in the open fields, the Spanish war horses were in their element. The horses thundered from one side of the field of battle to the other and back, again and again, crushing those in their path. The Aztec warriors had never experienced anything like it. At one point, the cavalry would take aim at the Aztec chiefs, who were easy to distinguish due to their elaborate clothing and decorative featherwork that they wore. One of Cortez's captains, Juan de Salamanca, would reach the Aztec commander, Matlatzincatl, and kill him. By the way, Matlatzincatl had been wearing a plumed headdress, which Salamanca took as a prize. He would later use the decorative plume in his family's coat of arms. With their leader dead, the Aztecs' will to fight waned. They would exit the field of battle, the Spanish and Clos Collins still standing. But let us not sugarcoat things here. This had been a hard-fought and desperate battle. Losing meant losing everything to the Spanish. Their lives were on the line, and they fought accordingly. About 75 Spanish soldiers would be killed in the battle. Cortez himself would suffer numerous injuries. The victory at Atumba may have been Cortez's finest moment as a general. His men were at their lowest point, and he had led them to a stunning victory, saving not just their hopes of conquering Mexico, but their very lives. Three days later, on July 11, 1520, the Spanish army reached Tlaxcala. Here, the Spanish would enjoy a respite from the fighting. However, things were pretty dire for some of the injured, including Cortez. At Tenochtitlan and Otumba, Cortez had taken multiple injuries. He had had two fingers crushed, and a knee badly injured, and a number of minor wounds. But he had also been hit in the head several times, and here, the Captain General would finally be overcome by all of this. Cortez would fall into semi-consciousness, maybe even a coma. He had a fever and battled an infection. He would spend a week like this before finally recovering. By the way, in 1946, Cortez's remains, which had been thought lost, were rediscovered. His skull showed several fractures, consistent with the injuries he had suffered. The Spanish would spend 20 days in Tlaxcala, recuperating from the fighting and the flight from Tenochtitlan. Now, in addition to Cortez's health, another serious issue would arise that threatened the lives of the entire expedition. In the wake of the defeat at Tenochtitlan, the Tlaxcalans were reassessing their relationship with the Spanish, the Aztecs had reached out to the Klaus Collins, looking to establish a truce. Some nobles, including Zicotenga the Younger, the son of the Klaus Collins leader, Zicotenga the Elder, championed the idea of turning on the Spanish. But Cortes still had many supporters, and they would win the day, but not without negotiating new conditions to the Spanish-Klaus Collins relationship. The Klaus Collins would extract many concessions, territories, treasure, exemption from paying tribute to the Spanish crown, that sort of thing. Cortez would agree to all of these provisions as the Klaus Collins were critical to his plans, which, if you have not guessed, included the retaking of Tenochtitlan and the subjugation of the Aztec Empire. When word of Cortez's plans spread to his men, there was a ripple of uneasiness from within the ranks. I mean, hey, they had just gotten their butts handed to them by the Aztecs in Tenochtitlan. They were happy to be alive, and now Cortez wanted to go back and do it again? Many thought the man crazy, and they said so. Some accused him of being obsessed with glory and greedy. It also didn't help that Cortez ordered all the treasure he'd had squirreled out of Tenochtitlan was to be given back to him. He needed this to fund his upcoming war with the Aztecs. The men reluctantly complied with the order, but they were not happy. 
In the end, Cortes was said to have swayed many of his men with an impassioned speech, appealing to their honor and faith, not to mention their greed. Also, and this is very important, it didn't hurt that Cortes's junior leaders, his captains and lieutenants, were committed to him. They would be crucial to keeping the rest of the men in line. And finally, the men all knew how much treasure had been left in Tenochtitlan. They no doubt imagined getting that back. No one, after all, wanted to go home empty-handed. So, it was August 1st, 1520. The Klaus Collins were in Cortez's corner, and calls to abandon the campaign were reduced to whispers. Supplies and a handful of reinforcements had come from Veracruz. And most importantly, many of the sick and injured were now recovered from the disaster in Tenochtitlan. Cortez, just a month removed from the most devastating defeat in his career, was back on the offensive. Going forward, Cortez would have a new strategy for defeating the Aztecs. It would be a brutal and methodical assault on his enemy. It was not a march-in-and-grab-the-loot kind of affair, but a slow and deliberate military campaign aimed at the destruction of a foe. It would start by securing the lands and the supply lines between Tlaxcala and Veracruz. Cortez would depart from Tlaxcala with 450 soldiers and 2,000 Tlaxcalan warriors. He had less than a dozen crossbowmen and a limited number of horses. The destination was Tepeaca, which was about 25 to 30 miles southeast of Tlaxcala. The Tepeacans were allies of the Aztecs, and in the past they had attacked Spanish supply columns and patrols. At Tepeaca, Cortez would issue a statement to the populace, essentially saying, surrender or be punished. Very simple. The Tepeacans defied Cortez. They had heard about his recent defeats and were confident in their chances. Plus, they probably expected support from the Aztecs. In the first battle between the two sides, Cortez would not lose a single man while killing 400 Indians. A second battle a day later would yield similar results. The Spanish would march into the city and smash the idols and burn the temples. Cortez would then collect all the men and women and children, as well as any captives taken in the earlier battles, and sentence them for their rebellion. He would have a G burned into their cheeks, a G for guerra, which means war. These people were now slaves. I want to note that the Catholic Church frowned upon making people slaves, but they also frowned upon people rebelling against their true Christian monarch, and that is what the Tepeacans were doing, at least in the eyes of Cortez. Remember, Cortez had said that Montezuma had ceded the Aztec Empire to the Spanish crown. This made Tepeaca, in his mind, a rebellious state, which meant the Spanish would treat the rebels, I'm using air quotes there, in any way they saw fit. For three weeks, Cortez and his army would ravage the region. In one city, he executed 2,000 men, while 4,000 women and children looked on. He then had the women and children branded and enslaved. Also, here Cortez would found a new settlement, Seguera de la Frontera, meaning security of the frontier, thus establishing a permanent base in the region. All of this accomplishes several things. First, the victories quelled any discontent within the army and with his allies, the Klaus Collins. Cortez and his men were back in the victory column again, and this helped everyone's confidence. Second, it secured a critical part of his supply and communication lines. Third, it hurt the Aztecs. They could no longer expect any kind of support from Tepeaca. And fourth, it set an example. Cortez's brutal handling of the Tepeacans showed other native peoples what to expect if they defied him. So all of this was the first step in the grand plan of Cortez. The expedition to go in and grab a bunch of treasure was now a military campaign. March in, subdue, and pacify the population so they are no longer a threat. Build permanent bases, create a secure supply line to the rear, that sort of thing. Cortez did all of this while thinking about the endgame, the capture of Tenochtitlan. 
With that in mind, he dispatched Martin Lopez, who was the man who had overseen the construction of the brigantines on Lake Texcoco the previous year, into the mountains in search of timber. And why timber? Well, the answer is for ships. Cortez felt that if he was going to capture Tenochtitlan, he would have to control the lakes in the Valley of Mexico. Currently, the city could be resupplied via the thousands of canoes that the Aztecs possessed. Being on an island, Tenochtitlan could withstand a siege indefinitely, as long as they could keep bringing in men and food and provisions. Also, as the Spanish had learned on the Night of Sorrows, trying to fight across the causeways into Tenochtitlan was a deadly proposition. The Aztecs would swarm the causeways by boat, making the Spanish forces extraordinarily vulnerable. Thus, being able to neutralize the Aztec canoes would be a critical part of any attack on the city. So, Cortes dispatched Martin Lopez to find and cut down and transport back to Tlaxcala the timber that would be needed to build a bunch of ships on Lake Texcoco. Now, you may be saying to yourself, why bring all of this to Tlaxcala? And that's a good question, but we will answer that in a bit. Just hang on. So, with the great ship project underway and the pacification of Tepeaca wrapping up, Cortes would get a boost with the arrival of several ships at Veracruz. In all, he would add 200 men, some horses, gunpowder, and other much-needed supplies. Cortes was ready to move on to the next phase of his plan. But before we go there, you may be wondering what was happening with the Aztecs at this time. I mean, why were they letting Cortes just roam around wherever he wanted and destroy a valuable ally? Well, there are a couple of reasons for this. The first is that the Aztec emperor, Cuitlahuac, had his own political issues to deal with. What Cortes and his men had done had shaken the empire to its core. Huitlahuac now had to restore and revive the bonds the empire had with its vassal states or risk being isolated. The second reason is much, much bigger. And you may have been wondering when this was going to rear its ugly head. And that is disease. The Spanish had been coming to Mexico for four years now. It was only a matter of time before something bad happened. It is believed that an African slave with Narvaez's expedition would transmit smallpox to some of the native Indians in Sempoala. Smallpox had already ravaged Puerto Rico, Hispaniola, and Cuba. From Sempoala, the disease would quickly spread, and by the fall of 1520, it would reach Tenochtitlan. So, just as Cortes and his men were rampaging across Mexico, the native people began to fall sick and die. By the way, smallpox is a viral infection, and it is especially devastating to the native peoples, as none of them have developed an immunity to it. The result was something totally new and alien to the people of Mexico. Years later, a native said this about the disease, quote, Sores erupted on our faces, our breasts, our bellies. We were covered in agonizing sores from head to foot. The illness was so dreadful that no one could walk or move. The sick were so utterly helpless that they only laid on their beds like corpses, unable to move their limbs or even their heads. If they did move their bodies, they screamed in pain, End quote. Smallpox would be an epidemic amongst the native people, something that would repeat itself over and over for hundreds of years throughout the Americas. Nothing the Aztecs did could cure this mysterious illness. In fact, the customs of the Aztecs would contribute to the spread of the disease. In Mexico, families often slept in communal beds, and many cities had communal pools and steam baths. All of this helped spread the disease. By the way, something I never mentioned about the Aztecs was that they were a very clean people. In Tenochtitlan, the average citizen would take at least one bath a day. You will find comments from the natives about how dirty and smelly they thought the Spanish were. Unfortunately, these cleaning habits would help contribute to the spread of smallpox. So the Great Rash ravaged the Valley of Mexico and much of the Aztec Empire. It decimated the population, some saying that half of those exposed would die. Also, it delivered a psychological blow to the survivors. 
It also affected the populace in other ways, such as a dip in food production. In the Valley of Mexico, the fighting the previous spring and summer meant that there were fewer crops planted, and the deaths that followed meant smallpox affected the ability to harvest and transport food. This meant that food shortages were now plaguing Cuitlahuac and the entire nation. Here's another quote about the situation found in the Florentine Codex. Quote, Many died from this plague, and many others died of hunger. They could not get up or search for food, and everyone else was too sick to care for them, so they starved to death in their beds. By the time the danger was recognized, the plague was well established that nothing could halt it. End quote. As noted, smallpox would reach Tenochtitlan in October, and it would spare no one, including the new emperor, Quetzalcoatl, who would die from the disease in December of that year. Also dying would be the kings of Tlacopan, Chalco, and Cholula. You can see how the leadership of the empire was gutted, and it will take time for new leaders to emerge, time the Aztecs don't always have. Now, we should note that the Collins and other native peoples friendly to the Spanish were not spared from the smallpox. They died by the thousands. Cortes would use some of these deaths to his advantage. Example, in Cala, a prominent chieftain would die. Cortes would take under his protection the man's 12-year-old son and work to get him promoted to the top spot. The boy would be knighted by Cortes and baptized a Christian. Now, that's a nice story, but it also gave Cortes a prominent chief that he could control. The same thing happened in Cholula to the south. The nobles petitioned Cortes to pick them a new king after theirs died from smallpox. Cortes would install the nephew of Montezuma, a guy that he could control. So, you see Cortes integrating and intertwining himself more and more with the native peoples. It is a common thing in any colonial power system. You use tribal and ethnic and religious differences to maintain control of the population. It's a divide-and-conquer kind of thing. Cortes had played these political games with the natives since his arrival, and the seeds he had sown over the past year were now paying off. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. So, it was fall of 1520. The Aztecs were getting decimated by smallpox, and Cortes was preparing for his campaign against Tenochtitlan. With the gold he had, he sent ships back to Cuba and Hispaniola to buy horses, gunpowder, weapons, and other supplies. He also let some of the discontented men in his army depart, helping alleviate some of the mutinous mutterings that were no doubt still going on. Cortes also sent back his friend and colleague, André de Duero, to not only recruit men and arrange for supplies, but to try and smooth things over with Velasquez back in Cuba. By the way, Cortes would also send a letter to his wife as well as some treasure. It was the first communication he had had with her in a year. In Mexico, the Spanish would continue their pacification efforts, brutalizing any communities that did not fall in line. In Tlaxcala, Martin Lopez moved ahead with the plan to build 13 brigantines. The timbers were being hauled to the city from the mountains where the construction would begin. Nails, sails, rigging, ropes, and so forth were sent from Veracruz. The ships, when completed, would be about 45 to 50 feet long. They would then be tested on a lake in Tlaxcala, and if all went well, they would be dismantled and carried over the mountains into the Valley of Mexico. 
On December 5th, 1520, Cuitlahuac would succumb to smallpox. The new ruler would be Cuauhtémoc, the nephew of Montezuma and Cuitlahuac. He would be the eighth and final emperor of the Aztec Empire. Cuauhtémoc was about 25 years old at the time of his ascension. He was a successful warrior and vowed to resist the Spanish. He was also seen as a skilled politician, and right away he went to shore up support amongst his allies. On December 26, 1520, less than six months after barely escaping alive from Tenochtitlan, Hernan Cortes led his army out of Tlaxcala and over the mountains and into the Valley of Mexico. The army consisted of 550 foot soldiers, 80 arquebusiers and crossbowmen, and 40 cavalry. There were also nine cannons, as well as 10,000 Tlaxcalan warriors. By the way, we can't underscore how important and essential the Tlaxcalans had been to Cortez's campaign in Mexico. They had served him bravely and loyally. Cortez had used the rivalry between them and the Aztecs to perfection. He could never have done what he had done without them. I mention this because many people heap praise on Cortez for what he was able to accomplish in Mexico. But it would never have happened without indigenous people, such as the Tlaxcalans. Some people vilify them for their role, but the Tlaxcalans and the Aztecs had been bitter enemies for generations. That the Tlaxcalans took advantage of Cortez's arrival to crush their enemy is entirely understandable. So up and over the mountains went Cortez and his army. As expected, they were harassed by Aztec skirmishers as they went, but there was no serious opposition. Cortez's first target was the city of Texcoco. Texcoco was considered the second most powerful of the Aztec Triple Alliance entities. The city itself had a population of about 25,000 and dominated the eastern side of the valley. Cortez would arrive in Texcoco on December 31st. The Spanish would find the Texcocans flee in the city, leaving it almost empty. The king of Texcoco, Canacotzin, had fled and had ordered everyone in the city and the surrounding settlements to go to the hills or head to the other side of the lake. The Spanish responded in their typical way, burning stuff and destroying idols and that sort of thing. Anyone that they captured, they branded and enslaved. Cortez would then set up a new king of Texcoco, a young boy that he could control. However, the boy would die of smallpox within two months. By then, Cortez would find a new ally in Ixtlilxochitl, the brother of Kakamatsin, the former king of Texcoco, as well as the brother of the current king, Konakotzin. Ixtlilxochitl had known Cortez and been favorable to him and his cause, and when Texcoco had an opening for a leader, he was a perfect fit. All of this would help lure the population back to Texcoco. I mean, who wants to live in the woods or in overcrowded villages when they could be at their homes in a nice city? Thus, a normalcy returned to Texcoco. Bakers baked bread, traders brought in goods, farmers went to the fields. For Cortez, that is what he wanted and needed. So, if we take a step back, we can see what Cortez has done. He has set up a line of control all the way from Veracruz to the Valley of Mexico. The route is safe and secure. Now, with Texcoco in his hands, he had an ideal base of operations for the region. So, Cortez would spend the winter and spring of 1521 consolidating power in the Valley of Mexico and trying to isolate Tenochtitlan and the new emperor. Cortez would conduct a deliberate military campaign, one by one, picking off vulnerable or wavering Aztec allies. With this campaign, we are not going to go into a full-scale description of every step the Spanish took, but we will touch on some highlights and points of interest. Cortez's strategy was to encircle the five interconnected lakes that made up the Valley of Mexico. With Texcoco as a base, he pushed north and south, going around the lakes and gradually isolating or conquering, or flipping to his side, the various cities that made up the valley. Cortez wanted to slowly cut off Tenochtitlan from outside support. He had to do this by land and by water. The latter, however, couldn't happen until his navy was ready. 
but until then, Cortez and his captains slowly made headway. In the coming months, they would fight four major battles and many smaller ones. A few notes. First, we cannot forget that this is not just Cortez. He had some loyal and skilled commanders. Second, things will not always go well for the Spanish. Men would make mistakes, or the Aztecs would strike a blow, causing Cortez to reset, but never cease his campaign. There would be victories and defeats, but no disasters, although there were some close calls. At Iztapalapa, which is where one of the main causeways connected to Tenochtitlan, the Aztecs would almost trap Cortez and his army when they opened the Nezahualcoyoc dike, intentionally flooding their own city. The trap almost worked. Many of the Spanish were caught in waters as high as their chest, but they had noticed the trap in time, and most of the army escaped. Of course, this meant the ruin of Iztapalapa, a major blow to the Aztecs, a blow, by the way, that would dishearten many of their allies. Over the next few months, city after city would fall or be isolated. Cuernavaca in the south would be taken. Chautokan, an island on Lake Chautokan to the north, would also be captured. Chalco to the south, never fond of the Aztecs, would defect to Cortez's camp. At Xochimilco, on the southwestern edge of the chain of lakes, Cortez would almost be killed after his horse collapsed under him in a fight. The natives tried to carry Cortez away, but his men, including some Claus Collins, saved him. Several other Spaniards would be captured in the same fight and end up as sacrifices. Remember, the Aztecs still practice ritual human sacrifice, and they actively tried to capture men in battle instead of kill them so that they could be used as sacrifices. It is possible that Cortez survived the melee because the Aztecs tried to seize him instead of just kill him outright. There would also be a fierce battle at Clacopan, as the Aztecs were reluctant to give up access to one of the main causeways leading into Tenochtitlan. However, no matter how hard they tried, Cortez would continue to tighten the noose around the fabled Aztec capital as he siphoned off resources and allies with each passing day. But Cortez also knew that a siege of Tenochtitlan could not be conducted without getting control of the lakes, and that will bring us to Cortez's great project, the construction of his navy. In mid-February 1521, Martin Lopez would arrive from Cala. Behind him were 10,000 Clascalan porters carrying 13 disassembled brigantines over the mountains. Also, there were an additional 10,000 Clascalan warriors with him, plus 200 Spanish reinforcements. The porters were carrying hull timbers, planking anchors, ropes, chains, tackle, nails, sails, and all the other stuff needed to put the ships together. The 13 ships, by the way, had been successfully built and tested in Clascala. They had been disassembled for the journey over the mountains. Now, here in Texcoco, there were two critical tasks to undertake. First, the ships had to be put back together and then caulked properly. Now, Cortez elected to build the ships a mile from Lake Texcoco. He was concerned that if he set up a shipyard on the shores of the lake, it would only invite an attack from the Aztec war canoes. And he was right. The Aztecs figured out what was going on, and several times they sent raiding parties to try and set fire to the great ships, but to no avail. Thus, the brigantines were built a mile from shore where they would be safe. Now, this means there is a second great task. Cortez would need a way to get his completed ships into Lake Texcoco. For this, a mile-long canal, 12 feet wide and 12 feet deep, would be dug. The task would take two months, with 40,000 men working day and night in shifts. It was an enormous and audacious feat. By late April 1521, Martin Lopez was ready. The mile-long canal to Lake Texcoco had been dug, the brigantines had been assembled. Now it was time to launch them. By this point, Cortez and his captains had essentially encircled the chain of lakes and thus Tenochtitlan. Also, the Spanish army was growing stronger by the day, as tens of thousands of native warriors from newly allied territories and cities swelled their ranks. Cortez would eventually have between 100 and 200,000 native troops. 
Also, more and more Spanish reinforcements were arriving in the valley. Cortez's army would grow to upwards of a thousand Spanish foot soldiers and 100 cavalry, and he had more cannons, more arquebuses, and more crossbows. Meanwhile, the Aztec forces were being squeezed. Getting men and food and supplies to Tenochtitlan was becoming more difficult. But I do want to point out that the Aztec army in and around Tenochtitlan was formidable. I have seen numbers ranging from 100 to 300,000. And up to this point, the Aztecs and their war canoes controlled the lakes. So, that sets the stage for our next episode, the Siege of Tenochtitlan. However, before we wrap up, I do have a couple of notes. First, in April of 1521, Cortes would have to deal with yet another insurgency from within his ranks. A plot led by Antonio de Villafaña was hatched. The goal was to murder Cortes and install a leader friendly to Panfilo de Narvaez, who was rotting in a cell back in Veracruz. As always, someone gave up the plotters and their leader was executed. From this point on, Cortes would always have a personal bodyguard with him, consisting of six soldiers led by Alonso de Quinones. Second thing I want to mention is regarding the great hoard of treasure the Spanish had lost on their flight from Tenochtitlan the previous summer. Well, a bunch of that loot had no doubt been consigned to the depths of Lake Texcoco in the fighting, but it is thought that a lot of it had been recovered by the Aztecs. Legend calls this hoard Montezuma's gold or Montezuma's treasure. Now, there are many legends about what happened to all of this loot. One is that the Aztecs loaded it up and marched it north to some hidden location. But the other legend that I personally like is that Emperor Cuauhtémoc, who knew how much the treasure meant to the Spanish, had the entire hoard taken out to the deepest spot on Lake Texcoco and dumped it. It was a way to deny Cortés what he desired most. We will talk more about all of this treasure in our next episode. Otherwise, that is it for today. Cortés had come back to the Valley of Mexico in a brutal and methodical fashion. Now he was poised to launch his navy on Lake Texcoco. In doing so, he sought to cut off any and all lifelines to Tenochtitlan and pave his way into the capital. Next time, we will cover the siege of Tenochtitlan and the fall of the Aztec Empire. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you again for all of your support. See you next time. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is a yoga class? Get out of here.